This is an ABC podcast. It's the music festival you've been counting down to for months. The venue you're promised and you've paid so much dosh for is supposed to be a zoo. It wasn't at the zoo at all. It was somewhere near the zoo. So kind of like an hour outside of Adelaide, a blow through town with um, like a quarry and poultry farmers and a couple of roadhouses. It was not the kind of place you'd ever want to visit. But you forget the not-so-desirable location in a hot minute because you get that once-in-a-lifetime experience kind of vibe. It was somewhere near the zoo in a big, desolate, open, dry paddock. Just so windy and so dusty. You know, you've just got so much dust blown into your eyes and your hair was blowing around everywhere. Barely any trees. It was just red dirt as far as the eye can see. And somewhere off in the distance, I think you could make out giraffes on the horizon. It was very kind of Mad Max. What you don't see coming is the event slowly descending into a shitstorm. It was lawless, it was chaotic, it was a massive fuck up, you know, it was just mayhem. But the lineup is great. Bliss and Esso, Evermore, pre-fame, Tame Impala even. So you stay. And just as British India, the band you've come to see, hits that crescendo. Things just went from bad to worse. I could never have expected what happened. If you've heard about the shit show that was Fire Festival, then you're going to want to hear this one. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These, a show about that one wild moment in someone's life where everything takes a swerve. Pat Wood, you're our lead reporter, and the story you have for us today, frankly, it sounds kind of bonkers. When I first came across it, I, I was hooked so deep because when you think about big multi-day festivals, right, there's so much that could go wrong. But there's rarely been big disasters at Australian music festivals. That is until I came across this one. There were just so many ambulances and just all through the night, the music didn't stop, but neither did the ambulances. There were quite a number of overdoses. There was an atmosphere of trouble from the start. It felt a little bit kind of shady. Adelaidean Linda Hampton is talking about the little known Live at the Zoo Festival. Live at the zoo was kind of like Fire Festival, except instead of an island, it was a desert. Fire Festival was the famously failed, fraudulently marketed music event on Pablo Escobar's island in the Bahamas. That fiasco ended in jail time for its founders, and the story flooded the news cycle for days. To be clear, the promoters of Live at the Zoo were not fraudsters or criminals, but they definitely didn't deliver all what punters were promised. I don't know why no one's heard of this. Feels like it's been totally forgotten about. But I mean, really think about it, it's crazy. It's like this absolute fuck up of a festival where everyone went wild, tore shit up, the whole place was trashed. 
and yet we don't know about it. Live at the zoo was a two-day camping affair. It appeared like a mirage in the middle of the bare South Australian desert. It didn't even hit headlines at the time. I remember the next day, in the local newspaper, it said the article was about the size of my ID. You know, it wasn't very big. It's just one photo and maybe four or five sentences. And, and that was it. Declan Melia, lead singer of British India. Look, if, if I was an organiser of that festival, I wouldn't want people to know about it. I don't know if we would have talked about it again. Peter Rowe is Managing Director and Promoter of Live at the Zoo. Peter, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very well. Well, how do you respond firstly to the Premier's suggestion chimps could have done a better job organising the rave? <laughs> That's very unfair. There was this brief interview on ABC local radio in Adelaide. Uh, we had a great festival. Everybody that was there had a great time. Um, it was a very safe festival, which was the main thing. Our resources were chucked into making sure that we had a fantastic lineup of talent. We ran for 54 hours non-stop. And we had a very safe festival with a very, very low injury rate uh, for a festival of this style. So uh, we're very pleased with the result. I'd heard rumours that people had died. It was pretty high stakes the whole time. Fortunately, nobody died at the festival, but it did come close for some. Rewind to the beginning of this saga. It's the first day of Live at the Zoo, April 11th, 2009. Our punter, Linda, is music-obsessed, with hopes of making a career out of photography. This music festival would be the place that she'd take the pics that'd get her work noticed. I really liked the, um, the idea of documenting it, seeing how it all turned out. Yeah, I mean, back in 2009, camera phones were pretty crap and it wasn't like it is now where you look, at a, you look out at a sea of a crowd and everyone's got their iPhone up recording. Back then, I only had like a really shitty camera, but apparently that was enough to kind of give me a free pass to wherever I wanted to go. Almost a decade later, seeing Fire Festival in the news nudges Linda to pull that box of pics out. When I first got there, I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if this is really what I was hoping it would be. Um, I don't know if I really want to stay camping here for a couple nights. It was just, just this, just this barren, dry landscape. It wasn't at the zoo. It was somewhere near the zoo in a big, desolate, open, dry paddock. It wasn't pleasant, and um, you had to park um, and camp quite far away from everything. So you're just walking through this dry, arid landscape for what seemed like way too long to get to anywhere. You're walking through the elements as you go. More than anything, like you can see it in the photos, it's just like being South Australia, it was extremely hot and it was so dusty. The dust was like extreme. It covered everything, every car and every person and every piece of equipment and tent was just covered in this layer of red dust. It was also really windy, so you would quite often see the wind picking up the dust and creating these very cool looking dust whirlwinds. There was, yeah, there was just an energy from, in the crowd from the start, like people looked like they wanted a little bit of trouble in their weekend. 
and you can just see the ground is just covered in trash. People were there to, to get loose and people had drawn all over themselves in like permanent markers and shaved words into their heads. I think you saw the photo like live at the zoo in that guy's head. Dust, flip-flops and like ripped denim shorts, shirtless guys with lots of flannelette, <laughs> whole bunch of bogans. <laughs> As Linda shuffles deeper through her stash of snaps and the sun starts to set behind the stage, the stranger this wild Saturday back in 2009 becomes. There were fights. There were fights. People were getting assaulted. People were just breaking things, stealing things, getting more drunk, stealing more things, breaking more things. Ticket sales for Live at the Zoo were pretty poor. Partway through the festival, the vendors, the stallholders, they realised they weren't going to get paid. So they did a mass walkout. Stallholders went AWOL, leaving the festival's punters to run riot. There was absolutely nowhere near enough security, and that's, like, so clearly evident from what happened. Yep, most of the burly security walked out too. I had the feeling that they didn't give a shit. They weren't kind of worried about their own safety. There was a lot of booze stolen. But they also ran out of water. I guess that's probably another reason that people were so loose. There wasn't much else to drink except booze. There were a lot of fights. There was a lot of heavy drug use. It's no surprise that there's loads of MDMA and booze and people getting loose at a music festival, right? But what happens next is what Linda says took this event from disastrous to dangerous. The crowd pushed through the barricades and made their way to the front of the stage. Things got pretty hectic. And the crowd just kind of just went for it. It was just pretty lawless. Punters are toppling the barriers that separate the crowd from the stage to keep bands safe. But the unwitting photojournalist stayed and kept snapping. I remember climbing up onto this big concrete pillar just to get a better view and just watching from above. I photographed the security guards trying to hold back the crowd. There just wasn't enough security there at all. I can definitely remember one security guard, there might have been um, two or three, but the, the, the barriers were just like, I'll do my best to describe it, just like, it looked like something you could tie a bike to. Something maybe more, uh, that would be better suited for, you know, guiding people to, to the voting booth on election day, not for something to hold people back. Declan Melia, lead singer of British India, was centre stage, about to get stampeded. Like, after the barriers went down, then the people just kind of surged to the stage, and I, the security guard, he kind of gave me a look like a shrug, like, you know, what can I do? Washed in it like a sea of, like a sea of people, just overtaking him until he was, like, you, he couldn't be seen. People made their way backstage, they made their way onto the stage, they made their way up the scaffolding. As we were standing side stage, w w trying to work out if we were going to go back on, all of us were thinking, yeah, it's probably a good idea we stop. On reflection, it's, it was unsafe, no doubt. 
The band rooms backstage were just trash. They were looted and trashed. There were doors kicked in, chairs tipped over. There was all the booze was taken. Anything that was worth anything was taken. Everything was stolen. Everything that they could steal was stolen. It was just mayhem. Like people weren't, they were just so wasted. They wouldn't have thought, you know, what am I going to do with this thing that I've just stolen, this piece of equipment? They were just like, ah, just drop it somewhere else. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Next thing. What's the next thing? What else can I do? What other trouble can I find? The most disorganized and unclear and, and um, sort of chaotic moment was when we were standing there waiting to go back on and looking around as if for an adult and saying, what's the answer here? And no one had the answer. I don't remember any announcements at all to tell us what to do or to to tell us what was going on. Both Declan and Linda found solace when they saw sirens in the distance. Oh, there were just so many ambulances. It was pretty concerning. I just remember seeing this person lying on the ground. They looked like they were unconscious. Their friend was trying to attend to them, but their friend was like super out of it too. And I just remember thinking, they're not going to make it. Um, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help them. They were just covered in dust and just lying on the ground. It was, it was pretty awful. Nine people were treated in hospital for drug-related incidents. There were also several injuries attended to, some allegedly caused by police trying to control the crowd. All due respect to anyone who got hurt or OD, Jesus, I didn't know about that. But um, I remember seeing some sorcerer eyes in the crowd, but thinking back on it now, it's like, it's a real, did that happen moment. Things turned around when there was a bit of a pause and the police came in. The presence of the police kind of was a little bit sobering, I think. They had a bit more control. After all hell broke loose, promoter Peter Rowe says they did rein things in with reinforced barriers, security and police presence. But British India didn't get to finish their set. It petered out with all the climactic, you know, with all the climax of a supermarket trolley slowly kind of careening in an, a deserted car park and then tipping on its side. It was very <laughs> ungraceful and very un- anticlimactic. It just idled out. They were pretty straight up about paying us because we were kind of in the eye of the storm and, you know, we had our, our set cut short and we would, you know, maybe they thought we were like, oh, what a shit show, what a disaster. Surprisingly, the festival went on and the not-so-munted punters waited in anticipation for cut copy. Rumour has it they were too afraid of revellers running riot again, so they stayed in their car. Cut copy, the headline act, never played. Peter Rowe, what about the safety, the collapse of the barricades, and that uh, spurred, I think that's why cut copy pulled the pin, is that correct? Not exactly. Um, We had a curfew of approximately midnight uh, for, for, for live entertainment outdoors. And because we lost an hour in putting the fence back, um, because the crowd had, had damaged the fence, Cut uh, Copy couldn't go on. Our last band couldn't go on because we would have uh, violated the law that we'd, we'd been uh, annexed to okay. uh, with live music. So what we did then, we asked that they would play indoors in our indoor dance club, uh, which was uh, several hundred metres away. They went down to visit the site and uh, and decided that the uh, the staging was too small for them, and then they said, look, we don't want to play on that size stage. Cut Copy's manager made this statement at the time. 
I can tell you that Cut Copy wanted to play this show, as they want to play every show they agree to. They flew to Adelaide to do just that, and had every intention of performing, but the security had broken down, and it was the band and crew's opinion that it was unsafe to do so, both for themselves and the audience. This is literally the only time in the nine years I've been working with them that this has happened, and they have played in bad storms and in sub-zero temperatures. They take their commitment seriously and always want to play for people who have paid to see them. But if people get hurt, nobody wins. Oof, Linda, what a journey you've taken us on. I mean, what happens now? Will you burn the photos, frame them? What are you going to do with them? What will I do with the photos? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a use for them. You can do what you like with them. I mean, they're, they're pretty shit. But um, if you want to, I don't know, put them online or something. I just, when I found them, I thought it was really weird that no one had ever really talked about this before, that I hadn't really gotten any media coverage. And it was uh, just a kind of a cool story. In the weeks after Live at the Zoo, managing director Peter Rowe denied that he was responsible for what occurred. His American consultant, Hal Davidson, denied responsibility as well. Rowe and his then-company, Avalon Promotions, were fined $5,000 for breaching liquor and licensing laws. The court found the event was poorly organised, poorly supervised and poorly managed, and Rowe didn't dispute any of the matters alleged by police. Rowe blamed Davidson for the whole schmozzle, saying he lost $700,000 funding the festival. For his part, Davidson blamed Rowe for many of the festival's failings in a series of blog posts and press releases. There is one last offence in this story that remains unresolved, and I couldn't get to the end without questioning the culprit. (laughs) Well... I shouldn't be admitting this, but um, there there was a, a spare backup guitar string in British India's room, and I thought, maybe I should just take this one little souvenir. Ha! The thief is exposed! <laughs> Sorry, British India. What did you do with the string, Linda? <sighs> oh, look, I had it for a few years, just tucked away in a box somewhere, and when I was moving, I found it and thought, oh... What am I going to do with this? I'll give it to the op shop. Someone who plays guitar can have it. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love it if you'd follow us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and a review. It helps new people find the show. Also, if you have a story that we have to hear, email us or send a voice memo. You can get in touch, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Also, look out for season four of Days Like These. It'll be dropping very soon. And in the meantime, we have an incredible back catalogue of stories just waiting for you to binge. Find us wherever you listen. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Our season three reporting team includes Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, James Viver, John Chia, Meg Bolton, Taylor Gray, and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. Thanks for everything, Tamar. Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. 
Sound design on this episode by Padabud and Isabella Tropiano. The supervising producer was Ryan Egan. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. We'll catch you soon. Lucky.